Hello, Now Playing listeners. This is your frequent movie review co-host, Stuart, here to let you know about a contest we have because Facebook is Facebook. They like to make it difficult sometimes for guys like us to stay in your newsfeed. We're offering an incentive for you to go into your Facebook app, change the preferences, and make it so that you can continue to see Now Playing as part of your daily news feeds because they have a winnowing process. That means if we're not your closest friends and family, we may not be seen. And so if you go and make those changes, we are going to offer some prizes. First place, the book, a copy of The Art of Black Panther. Second place, you get the soundtrack. And if you want to know step-by-step how to do that, the instructions are on our webpage, nowplayingpodcast.com slash FB. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Laura. If you're reading this letter, I am no longer with you. There was more to my life than boardrooms and business deals. It also means I have failed and must place an awful burden on your shoulders. So, Lara, I'm asking you to complete my work to find the entrance to the tomb of the dancing light. Time to save the universe again, then, is it? Absolutely. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Tomb Raider Retrospective Series. With a hard act to follow, Croft. Part of Now Playing's video game movie review series. Do you know I can't resist a bit of fun? Hosted by Arnie. You're laughing at me. No, no, it's a fact I used to find you charming. I am charming. Justin. I think I'm going mad. And Stuart. Hello, boys. You're all wet. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. It will be an adventure. Death is not an adventure. Listener discretion is advised. Are you truly prepared for what you're about to learn? Some secrets must remain secrets. I am mumbling. These are very heavy burdens. I am prepared, sir. Today, we're discussing Tomb Raider, starring Alicia Vikander, Dominic West, Walton Goggins, Daniel Wu, Kristen Scott Thomas, directed by Roar Uthwag. I want to be named Roar. <laughs> Don't you? It's like the coolest name ever. <laughs> I am Roar Uthwag. <laughs> this is Arnie, the now playing co-host who likes dangerous women. Stuart? This is Justin, and I shouldn't have come here. We're in the age of reboots. It's not surprising they'd reboot Lara Croft because everything is coming back. But I can't say that there was a wave or a momentum they were riding, right? I mean, that we got this movie, I think, is because they wanted to make another video game into a movie. Well, there are a lot of video game movies right now. That's why we're doing this series. We're going to be covering Rampage really soon. I think right now, Hollywood is so scared of a writer that says, I have an original idea. They run screaming from that like they're in a haunted house. I mean, that is the Hollywood agent haunted house is instead of like Leatherface out with a chainsaw, it's a writer out with an idea. So they want any IP, any name recognition helps theaters. And Tomb Raider, the films were pretty successful 
And the 2013 rebooted game was very successful. This is the first time we have a Tomb Raider movie that is taking the plot from a game and deciding to put it on screen. Yeah, but that's a five-year gap. In Hollywood and in the video game industry, five years might as well be 20 years. I'll tell you what, the game they wanted to make was Uncharted. That was the one that Graham King of JK Pictures was really excited. I don't know this game, but apparently it was a big hit in 2008, 2009. Everyone was playing Uncharted, and that was what he bought. And he acquired at the same time Tomb Raider with the idea that on the off years when they weren't doing the male version of it, they could pop out maybe a Tomb Raider version of it. But David O. Russell was signed, you know, the fighter, American Hustle. I didn't know anything about the game, but I'm really a big fan of him. I was on board for an Uncharted film. Do you guys know that one? Yeah, I'm familiar with it. But you're not excited about it. It means nothing to come to the movie theaters, I guess. The vibe I got from that game is it kind of revolutionized free world exploration in this vein of game. So it was cool to the game industry, but I don't know that there was anything in it that screamed, take it to the big screen. Well, they had some problems because it, as of 2018, is still not on the big screen. David O. Russell went off and made other films, and I don't know if that will ever happen, but yeah, JK Pictures was like, well, if we're not doing this, do we do Tomb Raider? I guess we don't. And even though the game was, I guess you're saying a big hit, it was... Pretty much not going to happen until another Oscar-winning Best Supporting Actress said, I need a big payday. Yes, well, the game. I decided to play it between our last Tomb Raider reviews and this one. I've gotten about halfway through. I'd heard good things about it, but as we mentioned in earlier podcasts, Tomb Raider wasn't my jam. I was just so sick of jump from this pillar to that pillar to that pillar. And so I put in this new Tomb Raider game rather reluctantly, thinking it was going to be a hit among people who like Tomb Raider games, like Stuart does. And all of a sudden, I was swept into what I could only call an interactive movie. It is very different from any other Tomb Raider game. It is excessively plot-driven. It has a lot more fighting, a lot more tactics. There is jumping, but it's not like you have to jump from this to that to the next. It's you're jumping to save your life and you have to jump over a bridge, but then you also have to steal a bow and arrow and infiltrate a camp and assassinate some people to stay alive. It really is an impressively cinematic game that is very story-driven. You've got to go point A to point B. You're not free exploring the world. I mean, you can, but it's not going to help you. You've got to really follow along the story and discover why you're trapped on this island you are. It is very much like this in that the game opens with Laura Croft on an expedition with a lot of other scientists and their ship wrecks on this island the people are taken by some island natives who worship a deity and you get to escape and have to try to rescue your friends and try to stay alive. And in the end, it does get a little supernatural. That game rocks. I really got sucked into the game. I think, Justin, you'd hate it because it's all cutscenes. I mean, <laughs> it's really funny. When I turned it on, Marjorie, who's like you, Justin, was like, are we watching a movie? There was 20 minutes of cinematics before I ever moved. And she's like, are you playing a game or are you just going to watch it? But I loved that. And I don't know how you'd feel about it, Stuart, because I know you like the original Tomb Raider games. 
But here, I could see why this was a hit, and they did a sequel to that reboot in 2015, and they just announced the day Tomb Raider came out on Thursday that they have a third game in that series. What I also liked about it is it added a lot of realism. Gone were the double D cups, gone were the shorty shorts. You're actually wearing clothes that you'd wear. You're no longer a superhero who's like, I'm going to decide to risk my life jumping over this chasm for the fun of it. You actually use ropes, and when you're jumping crazily, there's a reason for it. It's desperation. Great game. And it sounds like they took away the raiding part, too. I mean, I think it was a criticism even for Raiders of the Lost Ark. The idea that white privileged people are going to come in and break into holy sites and steal relics maybe in this day and age is just not cool. So it sounds like by happenstance, she comes across treasure rather than being here as an opportunistic plungerer. Right. She's more an archaeologist. And when the game starts, this is her first real adventure. She'd been a scientist. She, unlike this movie, she does have a degree. She was a researcher as part of an archaeology team. I don't know if you call archaeologists plunderers, but she was going for scientific reasons and found herself thrust in the middle of adventure. Yeah, it's a subtle nuance. And that's what this sounds like to me. It sounds like they wanted to honor what had been done before, but make it contemporary. Again, it has been 20 years or more now since that first Tomb Raider. In video game years, that's like 100. <laughs> uh, you know, like games become passe very quickly. I think it's the right impetus for them to go that way, though, with a game that's had so many iterations and has a character that people know. Strip all that other stuff away and let's make it more real world. And that right there sounds a little more attractive to me, who's grown a little bit hardened against something that's been around for so long, where it's like, yeah, it's just more of the same. This sounds like I might have jumped in on that if I would have known that they were going a little bit more real world, a little less flash, a little less super moves. Honestly, I think one of the reasons I liked it is it felt like survival horror, because at one point there was one of those, if you know gaming, you know what quick time events are, where it's not like Adobe QuickTime, it's buttons come up and you have to mash them in a special order to escape. It felt like I was watching a snuff film because I was hiding in a closet and this guy kept coming and strangling me to death. And I had to watch this like 40 times before I could get past this thing. And Marjorie's just hearing Lara Croft groan and die again and again and she's like what are you doing and i'm like i think i'm playing a snuff game i can't get past this but it had that horror feel it really had suspense here's what i consider the risk of it from games is you're not really going to bring in a lot of new gamers using an old name you're going to find old fans and i think like you said justin if you'd known this wasn't quite so tomb raidery you might have gotten into it but it also appeals to the old fans, so it's kind of splitting the difference. But yeah, I think one of the criticisms I've read on Twitter endlessly are people not familiar with this rebooted game who are like, how can Alicia Vikander play this? She doesn't have big enough boobs. I mean, I'm serious that like going around Twitter is a discussion of the actress's bust size in relation to being Laura Croft. Yeah, I think that's fair because I think that that original conception of Laura as sex symbol is what remains in our pop culture minds. That is what Laura Croft is. If you haven't played a game in 20 years like me, you think of her that way. 
What do you get when you get Alicia Vikander? I think you get an unknown. She's got an Oscar, but how many people saw Danish Girl? I don't feel like anyone going to the movie theater this weekend is going because they just love Vikander. I just don't think she's a draw yet. I think her biggest claim to fame, at least in genre appeal, was Ex Machina, and she was under heavy special effects. You wouldn't necessarily even recognize that this is the same woman that was that captured robot. I didn't recognize her, even though I knew that. The thing that I also barely recognized her from is two years ago when we reviewed her in Jason Bourne. I guess that's the closest to action film cachet she has, but it's sort of a way to go. I mean, you look at Daisy Ridley and what Marvel's doing, with the exception of Cumberbatch and Paul Rudd, you find actors to play characters, and it's the role that makes them a star. You said an actress looking for a big payday. I think this is her trying to find that mainstream acceptance, and I'll give her this. She went really physical for the role. I watched some behind-the-scenes videos on YouTube. She added 12 pounds of muscle, did intense training, wire work, water work, strength training. She committed to this physically as well as as an actress. 12 pounds? Where did she put it? This girl can't weigh more than 96 pounds soaking wet. (laughs) (laughs) And she's soaking wet a lot in this film. But yes, here's what she'll never have on Jolie. Bad girl status. Jolie brought her persona into the character and one became the other. And so Alicia stepping in the role means she has to completely reinvent herself because nobody knows what she brings other than, oh yeah, I think she won an Oscar. It wasn't... (laughs) Always going to be her. Olivia Wilde from Tron Mm -hmm. was heavily in the running and gulp. Kim Kardashian was mentioned as well. No. I don't know how seriously to take that, but she would have been a name. She probably is looking for a movie that could have been something, you know, it's not going to demand too much of her acting wise. But ultimately, it was because Vikander had an Oscar and said, where is my big payday that they said, okay, we won't let the rights lapse because JK Pictures was willing to let it go. They said, let's give it a shot. And knowing that a Wonder Woman movie was coming to the screen as well probably made them feel like maybe there is a bandwagon to jump on. And so they get in-demand director Roar. (laughs) (laughs) Roar Thog (laughs) from Lord of the Rings. No, he sounds like he should be a character from Lord of the Rings, but he also is Oscar gilded. He was nominated Best Foreign Film in 2015 for The Wave. Have you guys ever heard of this? Uh, Sadly, no. Nope. I saw it. It's actually kind of hysterical because you think (laughs) disaster movies, that's one thing Hollywood has in Monopoly, right? You don't expect countries that are famous for like art films and little character studies to have moments where characters are running down hallways from tidal waves. (laughs) But that's what this was. It couldn't have been more boilerplate than a volcano or an Armageddon. It was about a geologist who no one would believe was claiming this fjord was about to have an earthquake that would cause a tsunami. And wouldn't you know it, this entire fishing village is going to be running from CGI tidal waves and earthquakes and every disaster movie cliche you've ever seen before made new because it's with foreign accents (laughs) and not particularly good 
good movie, but it's not bad either. As someone that just kind of enjoys junky disaster films, it's worth a watch. It streams on Netflix right now if you want to. I can definitely see why Hollywood would think, this guy we can get for cheap. This guy is a known quantity he can direct. He's Oscar nominated, so that counts for something. And what he does is perfect for a Tomb Raider movie. You don't have to worry about subtitles when you watch The Wave. I think that's also true for foreign audiences when they watch this movie we're here to talk about today. Is there a lot of dialogue in this movie? I I don't really think so. Yeah, not really. I did go see this opening night, IMAX, not 3D because it wasn't offered in IMAX 3D. I wasn't sure exactly what to expect from an audience. There's been a lot of question. Will this or Black Panther win the weekend? It's kind of a toss-up going in. Based upon my audience, I'm going to put some money down on Black Panther. There were 18 of us at the premiere, and there was a second showing after. There was, I think, three people walking in as I was walking out. It was not heavily attended. I just went to a regular digital viewing on Friday night, and there's maybe 15 people in there. But after the movie started, a big group came in, so we might have been around 25, but it wasn't a huge crowd for a Friday night primetime showing. And it was, it was mixed, you know, adults. There was one questionable family next to us that had kids as low as five years old up to maybe 15 years old sitting next to us. But it wasn't anything sold out or elbow to elbow in there. That's what I was intrigued with, too, was my theater had families. It wasn't heavily populated, much like you guys are describing, but they brought the kids I don't know why that would be. I don't feel like this was advertised to kids. All that I remember from the advertising is they really use that Destiny's Child song, Survivor, a lot. (laughs) But beyond that, I don't know what the appeal would be other than maybe the parents grew up playing Tomb Raider and now they're introducing it to a new generation. Or maybe they've just seen Panther too many times and Wrinkle and Time look bad. I think that maybe part of the appeal is they think it's a video game movie, It's cheaper to buy tickets than to get a babysitter in some cases. And Nick Frost was in the trailer making this look like it had quite a bit of comedy to it. I thought from his trailer prominence that he was going to be a sidekick, kind of like we had the nerdy guy in the previous two movies. I don't even remember him from the trailer. That was a quite a surprise when he pops up. Yeah, I'm in the same boat with Stuart. I didn't even realize he was in this and it was kind of a nice little surprise to see him. Yeah, I think it's fair to say I didn't know much about this movie going in, which means we need a plot, Arnie. Let's hear what it's about, and we can discuss whether the wait was worth it. British Lord Richard Croft, played by Dominic West, may be the billionaire owner of Croft Holdings, but when his wife dies, all the money in the world can't fill the hole in his heart. So he ignores his business dealings and undertakes an obsessive quest to prove there's something beyond our physical body. He stumbles upon the legend of Himiko, a mythical queen of Yamatai who had power over life and death. Legend said she was buried on a remote island so she could never harm anyone again. Richard discovered the location of this island and, leaving his teenage daughter Lara alone, went in search of magic. He never returned. Our story picks up seven years later, where now adult Lara Croft, played by Alicia Vikander, refuses to accept her father's death and, with it, her inheritance. So she works as a bicycle food deliverer to pay for her kickboxing lessons just to set up she can do the shit we're gonna see her do. Mm-hmm. And she's no one percenter. Yeah, does it, though? <laughs> But Richard's business partner, Anna Miller, played by Kristen Scott Thomas, insists Laura sign the papers, declaring her father dead, or the government will seize his assets. 
With his will, Richard left Lara some clues that reveal his secret obsession, and he begs Lara to burn all his research. He fears a shadow cabal called Trinity that seeks magical powers for evil purposes. Totally different than the first one. That was Illuminati. This is Trinity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But rather than burn his papers, Lara goes in search of her father, following his path. She hires Hong Kong boat captain Lu Ren, played by Daniel Wu, to take her to the island her father discovered to be Yamatai. The storms cause Ren's ship to crash, but they crawl ashore to be captured by Trinity troops, led by Matthias Vogel, played by Walton Goggins. Always happy to see Walton. We're going to see him later this summer, too. He's an Ant-Man. Oh, nice. Matthias has been on the island for seven years searching for Himiko, and Trinity won't let him leave until he finds the tomb. As Lara brought her father's research, Matthias now knows where to have his slave laborers dig, laborers who include shipwreck survivors and now Lou Ren. Lara flees and undergoes tremendous physical hardship escaping from Trinity soldiers, even killing one using her kickboxing moves. And on the island, she discovers her father alive, living in hiding, spending his years trying to misdirect Trinity so they never find Himiko. But now that Matthias has the research, Lara and her father team up to go stop Trinity. I keep thinking they're trying to stop someone from the Matrix. Mm. <laughs> But Matthias literally puts a gun to Richard's head and forces Lara to open Himiko's tomb. In the tomb, they find many traps intended to keep people in, not out. When they get to Himiko, they realize she was not magic, but just a carrier of a flesh-eating plague that could be transmitted with a single touch. I call that magic. <laughs> <laughs> that it's not also airborne. <laughs> yeah, you just like touch your sleeve and you're suddenly like rotting away. Matthias cuts off Himiko's finger to give to Trinity. Infected with the plague, Richard stays in the tomb to set off bombs forever burying Himiko, while Lara goes after and kills Matthias. Lara narrowly escapes the collapsing tomb, aided by Lou Ren and the other slaves digging her out. And with Himiko's disease forever buried, Lara and the team force the Trinity helicopter pilots to fly them off the island. Lara returns to London, now knowing her father is dead, and signs the papers to take over his companies. But in the papers, she realizes that Trinity's leader was Richard's closest associate, Anna Miller, a traitor in the midst all the while, as credits roll. <laughs> if I hadn't seen the movie and just listening to that plot summary... I would have thought we were reviewing yet another Resident Evil. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would have thought we were reviewing a remake of the first film. I can't believe how much they took the 2013 game. They took some stuff from the 2015 game because Trinity wasn't in the 2013 game. But they also, it looks like they took a lot from the first Angelina Jolie. I mean, we have codexes left by the father to lead her along the way. The father went on a mission that the daughter has to follow. None of that was in the game. The entire father storyline is added for this movie. And I mean, a father storyline is common with Lara Croft, but not in this story. The first hour of this movie feels almost like a remake to me. Yeah, I think that's wise, honestly. It's been enough time, and it hasn't, I dare say, no one's been thinking about those Jolie films for the last 15 years. You need to remind people all those things. We're doing a retrospective, so to us, it feels like 
oh, unnecessary repetition, perhaps. But I think it's actually very necessary repetition because what else is there to Laura Croft other than she's a rich kid who, because she's rich, can go around the world and plunder things. And I think they knew they had to change that. I think that they knew that would not be sympathetic in 2018. So she's actually chosen to live among us commoners. Even though she has this vast wealth, we have a Laura Croft who'd rather, yeah, deliver food on a bicycle and kickbox on the side. They're trying to build her up as somebody with integrity. And I suppose that works for a little while. But at some point, it does become almost youthful obstinance until she has to get sat down and be told, like, look, if you don't do this, your father's legacy is going to go away. Right from the beginning, from the very first moment we see her, they're drawing a clear distinction between Jolie. They don't want you to compare her to Jolie because that won't make any sense. Jolie started by kicking the ass of a giant robot. Vikander starts by losing to a woman, get put in one of many headlocks that she's going to be put into throughout this movie. It becomes a motif and it tells us right away, this Lara Croft can and does fail often. So if this is what we're going to do with our new Lara Croft, I'm into it. I think a nice break from the mold of Angelina Jolie to a new character, stripping away the things that we thought we knew about this character as far as her being rich and not having to worry about that type of stuff and not being built. I'm down with that. So what do you got for me? What they have is a lot of action. And my question is, do we spend too much time in London watching kickboxing and bike races? I feel like this is just there to set up, hey, she's super athletic, so she's going to be able to pull off what we see in the future. It's not like she rides a bike when she gets to the island. So I enjoy the fact that we're instantly in action scenes. They're well filmed. I actually really like the bike chase where she's trying to get money for her kickboxing class by doing this massive bike race where if she can stay ahead of all the guys on bikes, she'll win 600 quid. But I don't think any of it was story driven. And this isn't a short movie. It's over two hours long. Did you guys like the London stuff? You're right, Arnie. I was thinking about this after I walked out of the movie. It was like, in the moment, all this stuff is fine. It looks great, and I'm going for the ride. But as I was thinking about it, it's like, on a second viewing, all of this London stuff is going to feel too long and too much set up for stuff that doesn't actually matter to the ultimate plot of the movie. What I suspect is, it is set up that matters to a franchise, to the sequels. She has this best friend that we see for one second sitting on a bench confirming that she got whooped and marmalized. <laughs> they didn't introduce that character so that she could do that once. They're doing that because they're going to go back to London and she's going to involve them in future adventures. Now, the reason why none of these people matter, there's a guy at a kitchen she picks up food at that clearly is crushing on her and doesn't ask her out and won't ask her out at the end of this movie. Why do all of that stuff? I think that they're trying to think about the future. Or maybe some early version of the script had a real climax that ended in London and involved them. Yeah, but I did like seeing Vikander prove herself. She is convincing me with her physicality, especially in the kickboxing. I did not expect her to lose the kickboxing match. The fact that she can, I felt like it was kind of obviously going to show up character growth. Like here, she was going to lose, and later something would happen where she was going to win. The bicycling, it was fun diversion. It helped set up that she was willing to do stuff 
for money and she kind of did the back to the future thing she grabbed a moving truck and then hopped aboard it i think that's cheating it is cheating yeah the point is you're supposed to drip paint for your entire run otherwise they can't track you so yeah you could argue that makes her clever i think that means she cheated but the fox hunt's cool i think that's one of the better moments in the movie it feels like something from a different movie is what i'd argue it feels like a movie about young people a coming of age youth film ensemble and she could be one of them it reminded me of this 1993 movie that seth green was in he didn't even star Edie mcclurg called airborne about a surfer who goes on skateboard rides in dangerous streets it's a fun little sport film yes but it doesn't feel like the setup to an action heroine no what it serves to me as is we're basically hanging out with her for a day or two to kind of get to know her so we're getting to see who she is as a person what drives her what her day-to-day kind of looks like it feels like this first half hour stretches for too long this could have been condensed yeah it is the full 30 minutes of her in London. I like the action. I'll give Roar this. The kickboxing, it's pretty short, the kickboxing. But the bicycle chase, the way he rapid cuts, the music used, everything, it had me into the scene. I'm not complaining about not enjoying the bike chase. It's a fun scene because there's no stakes. The rest of this movie is going to be kind of dour and very grim. And so to have this fun action at the beginning, it was a nice way to settle in. It also tells me we're not doing CGI robots. We're not going to go over the top. I don't even know how influenced this is by the video games. I mean, not the video games I played. This stuff feels like born identity it feels like we're going for a handheld camera be real when you can use real stunts try to use the actor for the stunts when you can they're trying to mimic the idea that this is something that could really happen to a woman and they never go so outlandish that she's tap dancing on a pin with a machine gun they're just not going to do that kind of extreme action that would have been in vogue about 20 years ago I'm down with that. My appetite for those type of movies is back there 20 years ago when they kind of stopped making them. So going into a Tomb Raider movie, you're not sure which way they're going to go. So yes, establishing this early on, I think is very important to a modern audience. She literally says, I'm not that kind of Croft. When they finally sit her down, she's announcing to everyone, I am not the privileged Jolie that you saw before that throws away her toys and only cares about stealing artifacts. I have, what was the word you used? Integrity. I think that's correct. She has integrity and she still is hung up on her father. I mean, that is the conflict that really reminds you of the first film. Everyone else is ready to move on. They need to, in order to keep his holdings of his companies in place in the family, she needs to sign a contract. So we finally have this inciting incident about she's there to sign the contract and instead finds a puzzle and decides not to sign because she gets a new lead on where he might be. They never say the word, but it's a codex, right? Right from that first movie? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, very much the same idea. It's a Karakuri is actually the name for that puzzle box. And I only thought giant hooks on chains came out of such things. It looks like the box from Hellraiser. (laughs) No, these are puzzle boxes and you can play with them. And yes, I guess they could have things inside like secret messages and a key and a photo of father and daughter. This is where I'm starting to be reminded a little bit of the first movie where the father leaves 
a somewhat questionable breadcrumb trail to something that's a little bit time sensitive in a place where it's not for certain she's going to figure it out. In the first movie, it's she hears a clock going off in the middle of the night. Here it's, oh, oh, there's a puzzle that I left with the lawyer in a briefcase. And before you sign any papers, make sure you open this up and read the little note that I left in there. Well, I'm happy to say that it's far more credible than the Angelina Jolie, I left you literally an alarm clock. Here, this is going to show, first of all, that Laura, despite not having university education, is smart. She's able to figure out these riddles really quickly because he says, my first letter and my final resting place, she realizes, oh, I must go to the mausoleum we keep on our grounds where we just keep our dead people nearby and push the first letter of his name to find his lab. And there's nothing time-sensitive here. Trinity's been there seven years. It did remind me of the first one. If Laura had done exactly what her father said and just destroyed the shit, there'd be no movie, and everything would have been fine. Trinity never would have found Himiko, and the world would have never been in danger. The fact that she's reckless and wants to save her father, which is far more noble than whatever Angelina Jolie's motivation was, which I'm still uncertain of, is what creates the drama. There's only a time limit once she gets to the island. Until then, she could have waited five more years if she hadn't been forced to sign it to save the family mansion. Subtle differences. Important distinctions. Before, because Jolie was already a Tomb Raider, finding her father couldn't influence who she was going to become. Here, because they've set it up as an origin story, Laura will become the Laura Croft we know because he has left this puzzle. And that's smart. That's good. That is better storytelling that leads us more in a direction than the aimless willy-nilly adventure map hopping that Jolie would do. Sure. And all this is hindsight now after seeing the movie. I guess my point was, is as this was going down, I was getting a little nervous, like, oh boy, is this going to follow a little bit closer to that original movie from this point on? And I'm, I'm glad it didn't. I want to point out, you guys recommended that first movie. I did not. I think that this is a better version of that first movie. So I am actually happy to see them retelling this in a way that is more competent and more logic-based. Oh, I'll agree. I recommended that movie, but it's not like I didn't have problems with the story. And what I'm saying is they fixed my problems here, but it's still a shadow image. It's reminding me of the first one because we did just rewatch it. Well, here's one thing they could have done to make it different, and I am kind of wonder why they didn't. Why isn't she chasing after her mother? It's noted that her mom on the mausoleum date died in 1996, which is the year the first Laura Croft game came out. What if she's second generation Laura Croft and she's looking for her mom, who is the character that we did know? I mean, she may not be literally Jolie, but you know what I'm saying. She's the character that we played all of this time. This is the new generation that didn't know her because she was off in the world stealing artifacts. Why go back to the father when we already had that story? And that was actually Jolie's father, John Voight. Here, Dominic West looks nothing like Vikander, acts nothing like Vikander, only gets a couple stupid scenes in flashback with Vikander. I think they should have dumped the father-daughter stuff. Maybe. I know why they did it. The father-daughter stuff has always been ingrained in the Tomb Raider stuff, where you could see her as the daughter of Indiana Jones, or... In my mind, she's actually more the daughter of whoever Noah Weil played, the librarian, <laughs> the Indiana Jones ripoff. But okay. <laughs> that's an obscure one. 
but they could have changed that and made it the mother, but they're hewing close to the current gen of video games where the father owned the company, the father did have some ties to Trinity. All of that's in the second Lara Croft video game of the reboot. So that's the answer to why, whether that's the best choice or not. I could see what you're saying, especially if you could get an older female action hero in there, like a Linda Hamilton or something to play the mother on the island. Yeah, Dominic West is no superhero. He's not beloved. He was Jigsaw in the third Punisher film. Is is there genre love for him in that? I know him for The (laughs) Wire. That's the only thing I think of when you say Dominic West. He also had the TV show The Affair. But yeah, it's not like they got Harrison Ford to play the dad. You get more mileage out of Laura falling in the footsteps of her mother, in my opinion. But maybe there was some nervousness about having too many women in an action franchise, too, that it is predominantly attended by men. Men want to see representations of themselves on screen. For whatever reason, it's the more boring choice is what I'm arguing, that she is following in her footsteps. But the point is, this is what's going to give her a sense of purpose. She's been kind of bumbling around in life, choosing not to go to college, choosing to just be a courier and not head to any destination of her own choosing. And now this will be the adventure that gives her a whole sense of purpose. She has to sell this completely meaningless, it has to probably pay off in a sequel, amulet that looked to me honestly like a cheap decoration at a Chinese restaurant, but (laughs) apparently is worth so much and instantly pawn shop owner Nick Frost sees it and realizes that if he gets it for 10,000 pounds, it's a bargain. I think it's Jade. The thing about Jade that I've always felt like, like I think Jade looks cool, but it's the one that most looks like plastic of all the (laughs) precious gems. Like, why not just buy the plastic version? Because the real one don't look that great. But yes, we have this scene because this movie's pretty light on humor by choice. The screenwriter, one of them, she mentioned the fact that Vikander killed all of her one-liners. That they had written many things for when she was in dangerous situations and turned the tide she would make puns and do the kinds of things we would expect Arnold or Sly to say. And she said, that's not realistic. I don't want to be that funny kind of person. And so we need humor wherever we can get it. And if it's Nick Frost for five seconds in a pawn shop, so be it. Okay, so when you say killed means when she was coming to the character, I thought you meant she was delivering them really, really poorly and they cut them all out. I thought you said she was nailing them. (laughs) No, no, she did not feel like her idea of the character would do that. And since she's an Oscar-winning actress who's going to be carrying on this franchise beyond when these screenwriters are going to be on there, she got the final say on that. She defines the way that we see Laura on the screen, even though the screenwriters wrote the adventure for her. Good for her. I think that's the right instinct here. Yeah, I agree. This is a more grounded film based on a more grounded video game. The video game never had those Arnold one-liners. I think that it was a wise choice. But yeah, Nick Frost is there for this scene He kind of goes with the London vibe. I guess everything in London is a little bit more fun. And then when she leaves for Hong Kong with the 8,000 pounds she gets for that necklace, all of a sudden it turns different. I was... God, I I never, ever want to think of that Legend of Chun-Li movie again, but when I see her backpacking <laughs> around boats, 
<laughs> yeah, I got flashes of that myself. Well, to be fair, she has an email. It's not a scroll. She has an email that confirms that her father was in contact with a Lou Rin who rented the boat that he used to go to wherever he is right now. So that's her concern. She is inundated with a whole bunch of Himiko nonsense at this point. She's read all about this queen, who, by the way, is a real historical figure. They did take that from history. Her powers are mythical, but she is real. And it is a source of great debate in archaeologists and historians as to where she's buried. And so they took something kind of cool from history. It's, again, more realistic based seems to be the mantra that everyone making this film is taking. But she doesn't believe in the myth. She won't believe in magic and myth until she has been reunited with her father again and seen some of the things she's going to see. And so that's part of her character journey. Right now, she's just trying to find out to where her father might be, and she finds the son of the man who went off with him. And she also finds three muggers. Question, were they trying to get her bad because they just rob everyone, or are they part of the Order of Trinity? I thought they just robbed everyone. This is not a very flattering look at Hong Kong. It really looks dirty. I have seen some glorious video of Hong Kong. I would like to go to Hong Kong. I would not like to go to this seedy dock where the only people who speak English are going to rob you. But it was another chance to show us her jumping. This is where I immediately get her jumping. That's what I associate with Lara Croft. And she's afraid to jump. The robbers jump onto a moving boat and she stands there and looks afraid and decides she's going to go the other way. Later, she's going to have to make the jumps. It's another character development. She's going to be pushed into jumping, which she won't do here, but yet she's still athletic enough, and she's determined enough, brave enough, to go after three guys. Even when she gets her bag back, one of them pulls a knife, and then she's going to run, which is the smart thing to do when you have an armed assailant. Yeah, that's what I think. Like, I believe a mugger, you chase a mugger. I don't think a mugger, like, when you get the bag back, pulls a knife and tries to kill you. I think mugging is different from murderer, which is why I think that these guys might have always been following her. They're part of this cabal that we've only heard hints about. We've heard Order of Trinity. We've heard a lot of exposition in the background. But I think we're to think that they are trying to track her to her father. That's an interesting thought. I didn't have that myself until maybe, you know, like we get to the end and maybe start putting a few things together and giving the plot a little bit more help than what it's putting on screen. I seriously just took this as some thugs hanging around the docks looking for innocent tourists who would for whatever reason be hanging around those fishing docks. But she escapes and is lucky to have run right onto the boat she's looking for and be saved by a drunken Lou Ren. Now, I understand they modified the newer game so that there is a second player, that you can actually be someone else. That Tomb Raider doesn't necessarily mean Lara Croft. And I've noticed they've taken her name out of the title this time. Lou Ren is more like the character I think we would expect to see in this kind of action movie. This is a Harrison Ford interpretation of a reluctant hero who we first see looking heroic with a shotgun, and then in the next scene we realize he's drunk and he's falling over the rail. Lou Ren is a creation for this movie. He is not from any of the games. He's an amalgam. I mentioned in the game I watched, there were a whole bunch of people who went to the island with Lara, including a boat captain and a bunch of other archaeologists. They 
wisely cut that down because that game is long. It takes about 30 hours to watch that movie from start to finish. And each of those characters gets a little bit of backstory. And in this case, by narrowing it down to one, they give us an ally. I feel like he's a second player, that his adventure could be just as important as her adventure. They're both the Tomb Raider, and that he has a similar setup. The only reason he goes, aside from the money, is because he wants to know what happens to his dad as well. They have the same backstory. Our dads went off together. We should go together and find them. Right. And we also see the different way that it's affected their lives. You know, Laura very much wears it on her sleeve that she's not willing to accept that her father's dead and she's going to do whatever it takes to find him. And one of the first things Lou Ren says is, you know, my father's dead, move on. You know, so he he needs a little prodding to get into this. But this is where I start to feel like maybe in the screenwriter's room, there was maybe two different ideas on where to go with this movie. And in one version, I think Lou Ren becomes more of the hero to help Laura along rather than just becoming the slave that he does helping her out here and there and another path that we end up taking where we spend more time with her father on the island. Yeah. I think Lou Ren was meant to be something else and it just didn't work out in this final version. I'm going to make the guess that the studio is thinking about world building. They look at Marvel. They look at the dark monsters of Universal, Fast and the Furious spinoffs that they're talking about, Transformers and Bumblebee. They're thinking, how can we create a collection of characters and make our own movie universe? And I do think you could have done a version of this movie where Lou Rin is just as important as Lara Croft. And you could have seen his adventures, what he was doing while she was off with her father. I agree with that, Stuart, except Square Enix, the publisher of the game and a toy maker who I've met with, they had direct input into this movie. They're not going to say, hey, go create non-video game characters for movies. I think that they would pick characters from their own games, maybe tie Tomb Raider to a different world or something, but Lou Ren being an original character, I don't think we'll ever see him go solo any more than I ever think we'll see a Hawkeye solo film. Uh, I don't even know if we're going to get a sequel to this, but some of that may have been influenced when they cast Daniel Wu, who is, I guess, a martial artist as a long history. I don't really know him. He's most famous to American audiences, at least, for being the star of Into the Badlands, AMC's Kung Fu Adventure Fantasy Series, if you've seen that. I saw one episode and couldn't hang. But I do think that he, in other cases, has proven that he is a star. So if they had wanted to do that, he's ready for it. He's proven he can do that. But it is weird that they take this boat ride and they neither come together as a couple, nor does he go off to do too much on his own in this adventure. And the boat ride itself seemed a little bit weird because we see her studying and working with that codex again that's trying to unlock it. She leaves it on the boat. I feel like that was going to be a big thing is that she has to get that back. She never does. I guess it was that there was nothing in that one. It was just practice for when you get to the tomb. It's like the portable (laughs) version of the game. (laughs) I think that if she had brought it with her, then Walton Goggins' character wouldn't need anything anymore. He would have all the information and be able to walk right through the tomb and get it. By not having that codex, he doesn't know how to open the door even once he's found it. Oh, that's interesting because I took it as all of this is just to show Lara is very good at solving puzzles. I didn't even think there was a direct connection between that and the opening of the door, other than the fact 
that it was things on cylinders that needed to be turned to certain angles. It's also here to show that Roar is very good with tidal waves. A lot of this boat stuff feels like stuff straight out of that Oscar-nominated foreign film, The Wave. I have one problem with this movie. It starts here. It happens four or five times in this movie. And none of us saw it 3D. It's hard to see 3D. I had to look to see if there were even 3D showings. But Roar did put on Twitter, the best way to see this movie is in 3D. There are many times where I feel the action looks fake. Things look layered. I can tell Vikander is clearly on a green screen. And there's times where everything looks flat to me. Everything is in sharp focus. Her background and her foreground herself are all in sharp focus. I see tidal waves in sharp focus. I can't get a feeling of depth out of this, making me wonder if these scenes were shot specifically for 3D and they'd be amazing in 3D. But when watching it in 2D IMAX, I was really left thinking that does not look as good as I have come to expect action to look. Yeah, it, the thing is, it looks like they're going for Bourne, but Bourne, 99% of the time, used real stunts. And here, I feel like it's 50% of the time. Like, they do a lot with it. They do what they can with it. There are stuff that looks amazing, and there's stuff that looks pretty good, but computery. Like, I know that she's getting a digital assist in a lot of this stunt work once she gets to the island. Yeah, when the tidal waves come, when she crashes on the rocks, the worst ones, the parachute scene in the trees, where it really, I thought she was ziplining, not parachuting, and those trees are obviously not there. And then there's one where she's hanging and almost about to fall. All of those, I felt like they just didn't film as well. And I'm not saying I want depth like 3D. I see it in 3D. I'm just saying there's depth of field and ways of making two-dimensional images look treacherous and deep that this film isn't doing. The Fast and the Furious did a much better hanging scene with Paul Walker, and that looks great in 2D. This one, not so much. I mean, later on this summer, we're going to see Tom Cruise literally hanging off of a helicopter that he filmed for real, and this action and maybe it's better in 3D, I cannot say, but in 2D, I was left a little bit cold. But I did start wondering if my entire plot summary was going to be, sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a British heiress. <laughs> the mighty ship was tossed, if not for the courage of Ren, the endurance would be lost. <laughs> the endurance would be lost. Except Gilligan's <laughs> Island had like a whole cast of characters. And the surprise is there's really not. There's a lot of nameless mercenary guys. And then there's Walton Goggins, who is serves as the voice. He, even he is a henchman. You know, we'll find out ultimately he answers to his satellite phone. He just wants to go back and be a father to his two little girls. He sees a lot of Laura in his own family life and it pains him. He's homesick. And so it's strange to have a big bad that really doesn't want the treasure that he's after. I completely misinterpreted the trailers on how this was going to play. In the game, the island Yamatai is a magical island. The goddess they find there is the sun god who can control weather. And so she crashes people on the island and you can never leave because the goddess creates storms. Well, in the trailer, I saw Walton Goggins and he's saying things like, I knew your father. I've been trapped here for seven years. I thought we were going to find somebody who journeyed with Richard Croft and 
and got stranded on the island and went a little bit nuts, went a little bit Apocalypse Now and was searching for something but going to be evil and blaming Lara's father. The fact that what we have here is basically middle management stuck in a dead-end job where he's not allowed to leave the island until they find this tomb was a bit of a letdown, especially since he acts crazy. When Laura wakes up after crashing, he's there, and it's just the two of them. And that's what I thought this movie would be, is, like, the most dangerous game. I thought it would be man versus man, one-on-one on this island. And he says, I've had no one to talk to for seven years, except this. And he holds up a phone. Then they walk outside. There's, like, a ton of people. (laughs) Why are you not talking to them? They're they're the help. I don't associate with these hombres with guns. I just... I agree. There's lots of different ways that they could have played with this island and this setup. But I do like the idea of a deserted island with a mythical tomb. And this feels like a good setting. And so it makes me want to play the game. I'll put it that way. You're telling me these share a lot of similarities with the game. It's a good advertisement for the game. Does it make for great drama here? Well, I do like Walton Goggins. I do think he works as a villain and he sells a fear that this character on paper does not have. It seems to me like they could work together and all get off the island. But because it's Walton Goggins, it ends up playing much more like a foe she has to beat. Yeah, I think this is where it gets a little bit muddled, because I do like Walton Goggins. He's been in quite a few series that I've enjoyed over the years, and, you know, what he's bringing here, I'm believing. He's playing a smart guy who's somewhat lost his marbles. The part that I'm starting to get lost on here is that that island's not that big. It Could it take him seven years to blow up every mountain? <laughs> I mean, I don't know what they need. Yeah, I also like Walton Goggins quite a bit. We've reviewed him back with The Next Karate Kid, House of a Thousand Corpses, his standout role, of course, being Hateful Eight. He was also in Predators. I don't remember Predators. I'm gonna have to rewatch that before this summer ends. But he is a good villain character. He always brings a little bit more to the role than what you expect. But there's a lot of mountains on that island. There's steep cliffs. I think it would take a lot. You'd need nuclear bombs. And keep in mind, these have to be controlled demolitions. If they just blow stuff up randomly, then they run the risk of caving it in as much as anything. Sure. Yes. If you have an Illuminati with unlimited power, then yes, they could have probably brought in devices that allow them to x-ray the mountains and find the two. I mean, yes, we could apply all of that and say, yeah, they should have been faster on all of this. It's clearly not the high priority for the Order of Trinity to get this thing quick. But you could make it be like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Let's work together. This map is going to help us. Instead, he's like, yeah, your father, you look just like him. And I killed him. (laughs) You know, like, maybe not reveal that. Maybe you don't say I'm the bad guy. (laughs) Which is a lie, though. Like, did he really think that he had killed her father? Or was he just saying that to what? Get her upset so that he could chain her up? A little muddy. I assumed that he thought he did kill him. But we never see a flashback to confirm any of this. No, and he definitely killed Luren's father. Yes. But whatever happened to Richard Croft is forever going to be unknown because he doesn't kill people slowly. He shoots them in the head when they need shooting in the head. So I don't know how he thinks he killed Richard unless just Richard ran off the way his daughter does and got wounded and figured, well, we haven't seen him in seven years, so he must be dead. 
Yeah, when we find Richard, we find out that he's hiding, that he feels that he can do his job best by playing dead and then sneaking up and sabotaging their work. And all of these workers are just shipwreck people like Lara did, and that's how they did it in the game, is that's why the island was so populated. They mentioned that, and they mentioned there were some smuggled people as well. But yeah, they're mostly shipwreck sailors and people that are held against their will, basically. They're victims as well. Which is a very real thing. There's people that, you know, in the real world have paid people to take them out of poverty-stricken situations or even somewhat slave-like situations and only end up being put into a slave situation. So that adds a, a layer of realism to this deserted island thing that I think is is a nice little subtlety to have this <laughs> this otherwise chain gang of workers being wrangled by a bunch of hipsters with beards and automatic weapons. Yeah. And Laura's not going to remain chained long. Lurin gives her the opportunity to bust out. Her hands are bound. So this is kind of an exciting twist on things. She's going to have to do everything she would in a game, but she can't use her hands. Yeah, that was really exciting, especially when you get into water. You need hands to swim. Yeah, for sure. And of course, it's just a law in movies. If you're in a river, in the water, in a movie, there's a waterfall right there. <laughs> yes, that will never end in a calm little brook that you can then just get out and walk across to safe, dry land. Never, never. Just a perilous waterfall with a wrecked plane dangling off the edge of it. Great fun, though. I mean, this is the stuff I want to see in a Tomb Raider movie. I do like watching her go from frying pan to fire. Each moment she thinks she's safe, she's only putting herself into greater danger. Yeah, and this is where a little bit of her own personal humor comes in. You know, after catching herself with the wing of the plane and then dangling over the edge, pulling herself up onto the wing, and then the plane starts to fall, the wing starts to cave in, so she has to run and dive into the actual fuselage of this plane. She thinks she's safe again, and now that part of the plane is getting ready to fall over the cliff. At one point, she just she's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's the right amount of humor for a character like this. I'd rather have something like that than... The proposed one-liners like Stuart was talking about. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And this stuff is good. Here's the thing. If you like it, that's all the rest of this movie is. Is it's going to be a lot of, oh, the plane is falling. Oh, now the other part of the plane is falling. Oh, look, I'm going to grab this parachute. And the parachute has holes in it. It is never-ending peril. This is good for an action film. But once this movie kicks into gear, once she jumps into that water... We are not going to slow down very much for the next 75 minutes. I, I disagree. There's a one big slowdown, but yes, I like this stuff. I think this is the callback to the foxtail as well. We'll see that when she lands in that parachute, she gets a stick or something stuck in her abdomen. And why do they always pull it out? I just never, you don't do it. If you ever get impaled with anything, leave it in because when you pull it out, you gush blood. And I think it's it's like the Fox game. Now they can track her. They send this one guy named Rocket to go find her, and it would be very easy to do. You look for the parachute, and then you look for the trail of blood. Yikes, yeah, and never mind the splinters that you're going to leave in there or whatnot, but geez. At this point, I'm still along for the realism, but... This woman would have at least four or five concussions at this point. And some broken legs, and I don't care about 12 <laughs> pounds of muscle. She got slammed hard several times. Somehow, she's genetically immune to broken bones. There's an adamantium skeleton under that 98-pound frame. 
Yeah, I, but again, I feel it. And the difference is you can play it one of two ways. In an action movie, you have to do incredible stunts. And you can either have the person brush their shoulders and say, no big deal. Or you could have them go, ah, and, you know, really get into the acting pathos of pain. They're at least trying to sell. It's not realistic, but it's more realistic than most in this kind of genre. Because she is really badly hurt when Rocket finds her. And we already know from her kickboxing class that she's She's not going to easily defeat this guy that's twice the size of her. It's really only because they're by water that she's able to drown him. Yeah, and this is where I think the movie really earns its PG-13 and almost maybe could have been considered for an R because this is a pretty gruesome death scene, you know, to have a, a man drowning in an inch of water. Well, she's letting off some of these really guttural screams and grunts that felt very real. The movie I thought of at this point was The Descent. It's in our book. It's a survival horror film about four women who go cave exploring and get into bad situations. But it was reminding me of horror films where women are really rising up against monsters less than action films because I did feel her desperation in suffocating him in water versus just being able to put him down. It's earned. Like, I believe that she could do it, but I believe she almost didn't do it. And I, it's not like I believe she's capable of doing this to the rest of the guards. There's still some reason to doubt her ability to take down the Vogel forces alone which is why she gets partnered up with her father. Arnie, when you say this is nonstop action, I feel like this is the one part where it slogs. And I know they have to do it. They've set up the whole point. She's been dreaming of him. The whole destiny is built around finding her father. It's just boring to me, is all I would say. I'm just bored with the idea that she's got to reconnect in this way. It's kind of funny the way they do it. He thinks that she's a delusion for a while and he never came home to her because he believed he was protecting her by keeping Himiko hidden from the people that could exploit it. I wasn't positive they'd reunite. Even when she sees him, I felt like they would. If I was going to put money down, I'd put money on she'd find him. But I thought they could replay the beats of the last one where she was chasing a ghost and she'd find his remains or something versus actually finding him and teaming up with him on the island. Yeah, and this is where obviously they made a decision that it's going to be more about the father-daughter dynamic rather than just having that be her quest and finding out there's more to life than just chasing after the idea of what your father might have been. They actually physicalized that. They brought her father back. He's been living on this island for seven years and apparently hasn't changed clothes. He's still in his adventurer gear with the belt around him. <laughs> it's just, I'm sure it's always difficult to make somebody look like they've been living in a cave for a number of years, but this looked way too makeup-y. The hair, the beard. Kind of reminded me of Robin Williams and Jumanji. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. But just the look of her father in this way just is pulling me out of this movie a little bit. It felt a little fake for the things that we've been seeing. I just don't buy them as a father-daughter pair is, I guess, my real complaint. It confused me. In the beginning, we have a, a scene, a flashback of him telling a seven-year-old girl, I'm leaving you. And I'm like, oh my God, that means Laura Croft is 14 years old? <laughs> it's only been seven years? She's seven years old? But he kept doing it. And so they've never had a relationship. He doesn't look much like her they don't have any acting chemistry together so it's all conceptual i know they need to do it it's the right thing to do the first movie we complained that they didn't do it but it just doesn't 
dramatically play as very interesting, is what I would say. And it slows the movie down for me. Yes, this is the biggest slowdown, is that reconnecting, him suturing her wounds and discovering she's real. Her cutting his beard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just not interesting to me, as someone that had already seen this play out, and as someone that was really enjoying the action and really feeling her terror, this just felt like not the right time to bring up the old pathos again. I felt like it was a mistake because in many ways now, she doesn't have to do it on her own. But then he won't go. He's been spending seven years playing the trickster, leaving wrong clues so that they keep going to blow up the wrong cliffs and making sure they'll never find it while he's alive. And Lara's like, no, I'm going to go back there because we need to get off this island and he has a satellite phone. That's the MacGuffin. The MacGuffin isn't the doom. The MacGuffin's the phone. And so her father follows her back to the camp where she does some sneaking around. She gets bows and arrows. We'd seen her as a child trying to do the William Tell, only not on someone's head but shoot the apple with the arrow. And I thought this was a good scene of her being stealthy. It is directly taken from the game. One of my favorite parts of the game, you're sneaking around the camp and have to use a bow and arrow to quietly kill some of the bad guys so you can progress. I liked how it worked cinematically as well as in the game. Yeah, the bow and arrow is a quiet weapon, but when you shoot somebody in the chest, they're going to scream. So I don't know how stealthy it is, but I appreciate what they're doing here. Yeah, and it's more trendy, too. I mean, it's more feminine. Going all the way back to Greek myth, to Hunger Games, and even today, I mean, I've seen advertisements around here. I don't know if it's just a Midwestern America thing, but there are camps where you bows and arrows. You you can learn that, and girls are being encouraged to do so. Brave? Wasn't there a Pixar movie about a girl with a bow and an arrow? There was, and those camps opened here after Hunger Games. Yeah, exactly. I feel like it's a trend that they're hopping on. So now... It's without a doubt that Vogel and Trinity are going to get their hands on what's in this tomb. And it is still called Tomb Raider. They haven't changed it that much. We need to go into a tomb for the climax. And so it's an interesting bind that Father would rather die than open the combination lock. It's this really cool spinny thing. That's what I thought the Codex was, because she has flashbacks to the Codex on the boat. It is. That's why I said it's the mini game, is because she was practicing on the boat to open it, which gave her the clues she needed on how to open this big one. And if she had brought it, then Vogel would have been able to figure it out. He doesn't seem that bright. Be that as it may, the whole point is only Lara can open this tomb. And because she doesn't believe there's anything mythical inside that's going to put the world in jeopardy, and because she wants to save her father's life, and it's the only thing that's brought her to this island, she says, okay, I'll do it. But I don't think that means she has to go all the way inside with them. I wouldn't think they'd even want a renegade element like her to be standing next to them as they excavate. No, but I think the whole thing is, you go first. You are the most expendable, and you'll figure stuff out. So you go first, we'll follow behind you. And then, yes, we have to get into a tomb, and... I think they were going for Temple of Doom type feel, but all I got was One-Eyed Willy off of a lot of these machinations with gears and things they could not have possibly had back then. Yeah, it's clean with the fallaway floor that they have to solve a puzzle before it's completely gone. With light matching translucent gems that were one step away from One-Eyed Willy needing you to play the piano. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yep. Yellow and blue make green. We're saved. How does a green rock save you? <laughs> the color of life. Uh, green means go. <laughs> Every art teacher in America is very proud at this moment that she remembered that the yellow and the blue together make green. Hey, perfect for St. Patrick's Day weekend. (laughs) Out of all the puzzles in this movie, the one that they spent the most time on letting us watch how they solve it, it's this one, the most rudimentary of puzzles. You know, I would have spent rather spent some more time with the codex and seeing what exactly it took to figure out the door later on. But no, it's this is give me these colored gummy bears and let's figure out how to make the floor stop falling out from underneath us. It's adequate is what I would say. They look good. I mean, that's the thing is when they got the chasm of souls and you see that pile of bones below. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. But all they do is walk across a ladder. (laughs) All right. Not that hard. I actually think Goonies had it harder in some circumstances. All of this is conceptual. They know they need to get in a tomb. They know they need to have booby traps. But maybe these aren't as exciting as they might have hoped. The mistake I feel they made is... This is quote-unquote real. This is realistic. We're not going to find a magical goddess like we find in the game. We're going to find real history. We're not going to go magical. Despite the fact there are these spiky roller balls of death that are going to come down and these traps that you step on the wrong tile and spikes shoot up from the ground and all of this. But this is supposed to be the quote-unquote realistic version. Go bigger. Because, again, she's figuring out these riddles it's reminding me of and this is what they're going for so they're reminding me of the right things but only the penitent man will pass from indiana jones and the last crusade so they're mining the right area it's like matthias himself they're on the right island but they're blowing up the wrong mountain it's good enough it's competent is what i would say as they're going through when i compare it which is what i'm doing most at this point when i'm comparing it with the first two movies i'm seeing how they slyly rearrange the same details to make it more plausible and so for that reason i think it's playing better than either of the previous two tomb raider movies while recognizing at the same time it ain't no indiana jones adventure maybe crystal skull Agreed. And yeah, I'm kind of watching this with one eye kind of closed and the other one kind of cockeyed, just kind of hoping that this doesn't all of a sudden veer off into some supernatural craziness that will completely destroy the tone of the rest of this movie. So, you know, when we do get to the things like the floor falling out and and spikes shooting up out of the floor, it's like, all right, you're walking that line. Is that technology available at that point? But eventually they do get to... The Tomb of Himiko. This is where all magic is gone. She was the typhoid Mary of her time. She touches you. You rot into a zombie, though. I mean, for a grounded movie, one guy does seem to come back zombie-like. They split the difference. They know they need to go big because it's a movie. They cannot go with realism. It would be very depressing. She just sits up because they have a rig to make you think that she's still alive. But she was just, yeah, one-eyed Willy and laying (laughs) there with a bunch of treasure. They could have done that, I suppose. But it wouldn't be much of a climax to just have it be a shootout between these mercenaries. They needed to have that element that's going to elevate it. It's not realistic that she would still be infected. Uh, This body has been lying there since the time of Christ. I did read about this. I looked this up and it is possible that mummified corpses could keep viruses alive thousands of years. And so through archaeology, we could discover a long 
dead disease that would ravage our population because it did stay there. It's the DNA in the amber. Yeah. I, yeah. My problem is more with the way that she instantly starts to decay. I don't know how realis- right. realistic that yeah. is. I think the decay would have taken a little longer. But understanding this is a movie, yes, let's move it along. Let's make that look cool. Yeah, because it's not so fun if you just have a whole bunch of terminally ill people running for the door. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, nosebleeds are not a climax. And I do think <laughs> that a lot of people might already feel like this movie is not on the level of action movies because they are cueing it so much to quote-unquote realism that they're just not getting spectacle. And so this is a spectacular virus that's going to make you turn into a rotting zombie within seconds. And it gives an extra oomph as we get the final machinations of this climax going. All right. So one of the goons reaches in, gets diseased, falls over, comes back zombie-like and attacks Richard Croft, who has to push him away. And so Richard Croft tourniquets his arm to stop the disease from spreading through him. I thought we'd go amputate the arm. I thought Lara might, like, cut his arm off, save his life. But no, it's like, oh, no, leave me here. I've got some bombs. I'm just going to blow everything up. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely feel like I was done with him. Like, it felt very convenient to be like, yep, she's met her father. She's got her path now. And now if you martyr him, she's got a real reason to be mad at the people that do that for the rest of this franchise. However many sequels they're going to get out of this. I don't think it's going to be many. (laughs) But yes, I think it's wise from a screenwriting standpoint to just cut your losses with Dominic West and let her go solo again. Right. And at the base of the character is wanting to know for sure that her father was dead. That's what she wasn't willing to let go of. And somewhat cynically, now she does know that, you know, he's no longer alive. But I always have a little bit of problem with the rules of viruses, you know, when it comes to whatever zombies or anything that you can catch by contact. In here, nobody wears gloves. I mean, if your job is tomb raiding and blowing up mountains in the jungle, wear some gloves. These guys are touching a corpse with, you know, their bare hands. <laughs> yeah, and Vogel seems to think he only needs a little bit of it. Like, I don't know how much he even understands about what he's excavating, but he thinks a finger is enough. It is, though. I mean, if you touch any part of the body, you become infected. And so that finger... You can't move the whole corpse without everybody becoming infected, but you can cut off a finger and then use it to touch an enemy who will touch another enemy who will touch another enemy. Yeah, you know, I get it. His point is, I want to go home. Like, he's already called the chopper. (laughs) Even before he opened the door, he's like, we're going home. It's been seven years. And so that's kind of funny. But again, it makes him a lesser villain. It makes him feel more like a henchman and not the force that she's going to be fighting, which is, of course, going to be what we find out at the end of this movie. But they have to have her take him down. If she kicks him in the face... Doesn't she get infected? I thought about that because she kicked a zombie earlier, too. She has shoes on. So it's like the gloves that Justin was talking about. The rubber soles protect her. But she better burn the shoes, I think. Yeah, get those shoes off quick. I don't know how this virus works either, but I think it's just not going to hurt our main character. And she needs shoes because the whole temple's falling down. The bombs that father set off bring everything coming down into rubble. So she's got to do some final leaps and get to the surface and get back to Lou Ren. Lou Ren is the most loyal hired captain ever because he could have escaped. He he led a revolution as Lara came back and got the people to safety, but he stays there for hours waiting for Lara to catch up. And when they don't, 
then he goes back and all the people are like, we're with you too. And so everybody who just ran from their slave job of digging in the mines comes back to dig in the mines. At least they're skilled. <laughs> the chopper hadn't arrived yet. We'll never know if that chopper landed earlier. <laughs> Those people might have been like, yeah, she was cute, but there's cuter people on mainland. So <laughs> let's get in the chopper. It's conveniently, she's out of the hole by the time the chopper that can take them away is arriving. So there's always that. How loyal was he? It's easy to be loyal when you have nowhere else to go. Ultimately, it felt a little unnecessary to have the cave-in blocker. You know, I mean, it would have been fine having her just narrowly escape the complete collapse. Yeah, I agree. But having her dig it out, it adds to the realism. She has had a grueling experience on this island. Why should this be any different? Plus, if I want to go Freudian, it's a rebirth. She's being pulled out of the tomb slash womb, and she is now the fully formed adult character, accepting her father's death and ready to be the Croft that she wasn't when she went in. Right, which is why she marches back to London, comfortably signs that contract, and considers uh, life as an adult. And uh, it's also conveniently when she thumbs through a whole book of assets <laughs> and realizes that Kristen Scott Thomas... I mean, we had to know. If there's some contract and you're supposed to sign... I mean, just... The deal with the devil. We just know signing contracts in movies and storytelling, it's never a casual, easy thing to do. It's half of Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> yeah. <it's, laughs> you know that she shouldn't sign it. You may not know why. I don't necessarily think I distrusted Kristen Scott Thomas, but I knew that signing that was a bad move. Sure enough, seconds after she's turned over control of all of the holdings, she finds out that one of the holdings they have is Patna, which was the name of the mercenaries that were excavating that island. Or at least the name of the supply ship that was giving them what they need. I don't... I was writing down because I thought it was Patina. And I'm like... Patina? What, what, why are you calling them? But Patna. And yeah, she happens to see Patna. And then, of course, from the elevator, Anna gives that evil, I'm a villain look. Because mm. she, or is that the, I'm making more money in a sequel I'm contracted to do <laughs> yes. look. That is what everyone <laughs> is banking on here. Sequel, sequel, sequel. And if you thought this was a little light on the Tomb Raider action that you remember from Jolie, they do have a mid-credit sequence to say the double guns are coming back. Mid-credits, they literally show the title and then they have the sequence. I did wow. sit to see if there was anything later and there isn't. But yeah, we go back to Nick Frost. I'd forgotten all about that little pointless necklace and she's there to get it back from the pawn shop and get a little bit more jokes in with Nick Frost and decide, hey, I'm a Brit. Let's buy guns. Is that even legal in Britain? <laughs> That's the question I had too, right? They were in the back room. Yes. She caught him out of the corner of her eye, but quite the stock room of, of weapons for a little pawn shop to be having. The bobbies can't carry guns, can the people? <laughs> hey, that was the point, was the blonde woman that's always chastising Nick Frost made the mistake of leaving the door ajar and thus invited Laura into the back. So Justin Stewart, do you recommend Tomb Raider? Justin. Going into this third installment, I really didn't have any expectations. I only really knew what the poster and one of the trailers had told me about this movie. So I walk out of it a little bit surprised and a little happy 
with the direction that they went here. I don't think that they nailed everything they tried to do. I kind of like the vibe that they were going for. They kind of mixed Indiana Jones with a Da Vinci Code type of thing. And I kind of wish they would have landed a little bit more on the Da Vinci Code and spent a little more time having her solve riddles and figure that stuff out. That would have been more fun. But ultimately, I think what we end up with here is a good modern retelling or rebooting of an older franchise that used to be a 90s type of action film, which I feel like they could have done. You never know in today's world if they're just going to try to remake the same thing over again just with new people or if they're going to give it its own flavor. And I guess what I'm saying is I'm glad they went with their own flavor here. Now, am I going to go see this movie over and over again? No. And if they happen to do a sequel, I would be interested to see where they went with it, more so than after watching the original Tomb Raider back in 2000. So I'm going to give this one a mild recommend. As much as I gave the first one a mild recommend and not the second one, this one I think is the best out of the franchise so far. So yeah, if you've been along this far, go ahead and check this one out. Stuart. Yeah, flavor is the key. I mean, I said it last week. I'm not expecting Oscars. I know the actresses that have played this role have won them, but this is not going to get anyone a statue. It's formula. What you want is for it to not feel impersonal. That's what I begged after Cradle of Life. Do this again. Give me some flavor. And that's exactly what they've done. They've given a thoughtful remake of the first movie, calculated so that it makes a lot more sense. There's a premium placed on logic and they've given us an action star who is more than a maxim pinup or a fast and furious groupie she's a real person thrust into impossible circumstances and she survives i mean i do think the daddy reconnection storyline is boring but if they make another one they're not going to do it and i think it's better than what voight and jolie did and so I won't ding the movie too hard for that. It won't change your life, but it will pass the time nicely. And I'm just grateful that in this retrospective, where it has been scarlet red arrows, that I could fire one upwards and say mild recommend. This is clearly the best Tomb Raider movie ever. Not saying a whole lot. Mm -mm. <laughs> Alicia Vigander did tremendous. I believed every bit of her agony and struggle and bleeding and fighting and stealthing and pain. I went with her when she was happy doing the fox hunt. I went with her when she was agonizingly drowning a man. And I went with her at the end when she realizes the duplicity. She is a really good Lara Croft. But in the end, this movie is similar to what Justice said before. It's right there with some of the better Resident Evils in that it's perfectly competent action, but there's nothing special here about it. In fact, I think the Resident Evil movies had something a bit more special with the tech and the zombies. Here, Trinity feels like another name for Umbrella. And the action was really good, except for some of the green screen that was too obvious in the 2D, but it wasn't special. And I feel like Vikander, both in her Jason Bourne film and here... Jason Bourne. I liked that Jason Bourne remake. Does anyone remember we reviewed Jason Bourne in 2016? Does anyone remember we reviewed <laughs> Death Wish two weeks ago? <laughs> <laughs> some movies are built to last, and some movies are meant to be enjoyed and forgotten. And this one, I can't give it a strong recommend. I can't say you gotta see this. If you're a Tomb Raider fan, you're not gonna be disappointed. If you like action movies, go see Black Panther again. But this is fine, but like the 
popcorn you eat at the movie theater, it's forgotten the moment you I walked out of the theater. This movie's leaking out of my brain as it is. I feel there's nothing special here. There's absolutely nothing about this movie, including Vikander, I love. I think she's good. I think the action's good. I think the directing's good. I think Goggins is good. That's all I can say is it's good. It's fine. It's definitely a green arrow. It doesn't have the glaring flaws of either Jolie one. Right. But it has nothing in it to set it apart from movies like San Andreas with The Rock or whatever that rock one is coming up where he has one leg or White House Down. There's just so many action movies out there that fall into the realm of noise. They're perfectly acceptable for a Friday night where you want to watch an action film, but it's not going to be a must-must-see. Still, Green Arrow, and that's something positive to say. Yeah, what you're really saying, begging a a very good question, is why would they make any more? Like, this is going to do okay, won't change anyone's life, and it won't inspire a new generation of filmmakers to pick up the camera. It will be seen, it will be forgotten. Will they bother to make another one? I think it's going to look at the international audience. This movie cost about $100 million to make. It's probably going to fall behind Black Panther this weekend. They're estimating 22 to $25 million for the weekend. It's not going to make its money back in the States. But if it does tremendous overseas, that can sometimes bring back movies that we're like, we're doing another one of those. <laughs> yeah, it's like the cinematic equivalent of a booty call. Like, <laughs> I just need something. Kid, I just need something for tonight. And if everyone's willing, we'll just come together and knock another one out. But nobody is thinking it's a long-term relationship. If they don't make another one, I'm not going to feel like I'm missing anything. Mm. If they make another one, I just hope they can do something with it to make it stand out other than just have a female protagonist, which is not that novel anymore. Now every movie's doing it. Definitely not. Right. I would be afraid that they would dial in too much on this Trinity aspect, which to me, I think was fine as just kind of in the background. We don't need Trinity in the foreground like the Illuminati was. We don't need to know what their plans are with this virus. It's good enough to know that what it's possible to do. You know, we don't need them to be the center of a movie. And I feel like that would be where they'd want to try to take this. It's like, oh, we set up Trinity. Let's really get into this now. Oh, yeah, they'll definitely keep that going. It'll be the story engine, like a television series. Each movie will produce a new henchman working for Trinity. It's all about the tomb. You can have your specter to Lara Croft. I don't mind there being a Trinity, but what's the specific mission? I don't want to see Lara Croft beat up Kristen Scott Thomas. That is not a movie I want to see. <laughs> but whatever mission they go on, whatever tomb they raid, that's going to tell me if it's a good movie or not. Maybe more Nick Frost. Does Nick Frost need to come along? <laughs> I think that they were definitely open to the idea that if anything here was popular, they could spin it off or continuing it. The question is, will this stick in anyone's mind, including the people that participated in making it? Will Alicia be thinking about doing this? I think it will be determined if she gets a different payday down the road. If she finds another more iconic character, she's going to stick with that. This is good enough for now, but again, not something you put your future on. Well, speaking of future, let's talk about now playing's future. Tomb Raider is done, but there are more video games to come in a couple of weeks. But next week, we are going back to theaters again. 
IMAX 3D this time, despite IMAX saying, hey, we're kind of done with 3D. IMAX 3D, Pacific Rim Uprising. There's a movie that really feels like we'd be talking about with the Tomb Raider sequel, Pacific Rim. It was good. <laughs> I can't believe they bothered. It's exactly how I feel about that. I can't believe we're bothering and they bothered, but because they did, we have to. And so let's see how good it is without Idris Elba. The prospects are just lowering and lowering on that. <laughs> yeah, Charlie Hewden jump shipped on that as well, huh? <laughs> Listen, I liked the first Pacific Rim when we ended that podcast. I was the one jonesing most for Guillermo to follow that up. Guillermo didn't follow that up. He got an Oscar instead, but he produced, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll get through that one, and then we'll get back to a quasi-video game movie, Ready Player One. It certainly takes a lot of inspiration from video games and classic arcade games from the 1980s. I've read the book. I'll be covering it at Books and Nachos. Famous last words. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the three of us will use that as a kickoff to go further into video games. We're going to go back to Doom and then Rampage. And if you are one of our patrons, first of all, thank you. You donate the money that keeps this show going. We greatly appreciate your support. But also coming up on the patron feed in early April, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. So you have that to look forward to as well. And if you were a patron or a donor in our fall donation drive, last Friday, our review of Hellraiser Judgment came out. And spoiler alert, it's not as bad as you think. (laughs) We will be standing in judgment of it. The review or the movie? The movie. I'm not spoiling anything by saying it's better than Hellraiser Revelations. Yeah, I agree. It is not the worst one that they made. So you can hear that right now from our website. So Justin Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, game over. I burst to tell you everything. But in the fierceness of my own battles, I strove to tell you only that which would inspire you and keep you safe. I love you so much. Suddenly I feel so alone. You are never alone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Tempest Fugit. Yes, time flies. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. Everything lost is meant to be found. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other video game movies, including Resident Evil, Double Dragon, Super Mario Brothers, The Wizard, Street Fighter, and more. Well, I don't know about you, but that's more time than I'm prepared to commit to this enterprise. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. Welcome to the Dead Zone. Do you want to continue? Insert money now to keep playing, now playing. Do you think anyone here is paid enough to take that chance? Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. Da! Macho U.S. Greenback! Da! You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, 
Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Take me to Pandora's box. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. I'll take two. You can also join the Now Playing patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month, plus even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. Help me, and you will get what I know you want. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss these movies and games with other listeners. You shouldn't have come here, but I'm glad that you did. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. I think I've never seen anything quite so beautiful that I know so little about. This is a pleasurable torment. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. You know us. Always making friends, having a laugh. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You're seeing I. Now Playing's video game retrospective series is edited by David, Steve, and Arnie. There's no rest for the wicked. Now Playing Credits, read by Brock. Enough of this twaddle. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Can't be too careful these days. The world has gone bloody mad. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. At some point we have to face up to who we are, who we're meant to be. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2018, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the express written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. You messed with the wrong family. Let me get all of this out of me before I start a speech. Okay, we get to do a tricky out of me here. <laughs> British Lord Richard Croft, played by Dominic West, may be the billionaire owner of Cross... May be the billionaire older... This is gonna be fun! <laughs> <clears throat> but Matthias literally puts a gun to Richard's head and forces Lara to open the secret combination to Hamatai's tomb. And forces Lara to open Hamatai's tomb. Wait a minute. You're, you're now conflating. It's the Yamatai is the island. Himiko is the queen. <laughs> <laughs> Hamakai is, I don't know, something you get at Benihana. <laughs> it's good warm, too. Yes. No MSG on my Hamatai, please. <laughs> Plenty of sake with that. But Matthias literally puts a gun to Richard's head and forces Lara to open Himiko. Himiko's tomb. Himiko?
Himakai. Himako. No Kai. It's Yamakai. <laughs> Mega T. Mega Tai. Himako Yamakai. Himako Yamakai. Himako Yamakai. <laughs> you don't believe. Well, now I have to change my notes because I've homicide the rest of my notes. <laughs> Just say the dead bitch. <laughs> Himiko. Hamatai. Hamatai. Okay. <clears throat> And just to Laura, uh, we've gotten picked on for Laura. Laura. I can't say it. That's how I say Laura. Okay. And even in the movie, everybody says it different. <laughs> I just, paid attention I, to I, that. I'm, I'm saying it once just right. to put out there. <laughs> I understand mind. that it's La- Lara Croft. I'm not going to do that. It's. I one time got lectured about it. It's Milburn. It's Milburn. No, it's to Americans. It's Melbourne. That's sorry. There's just some things that are just culturally. It's where you grew up. It's how you say them. And the thing is, when I say Laura, I say Laura, like L-O-R-E, lore. And so for me, Laura saying that the way they think of that is I'm saying Laura is Laura to them. But it's Laura to me. Yeah. Okay, they think I, you're adding a U, but you're adding an O-R-E. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I mean, I get it to a, a little degree, but some of it is you sound pretentious when you affect those sounds and you're from a certain place. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I don't try to trill my R's when we do Spanish names. Right. Exactly. There are proper <laughs> ways of saying things in a certain dialect that do not sound proper when appropriated. But <laughs> when whited out. Anyway, I will, I will try to, I've been trying to say Laura, okay. but. I just, I, I'm not going to say Lara. I just, it's <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> I'd, is it, hey, Justin, do you know if it's Square Enix or Square Onyx? I, you know, the old commercials when they had them on, it was that French lady saying Square Onyx. That's what I thought so, too. Uh, let me look up real quick. What is drum playing and music? I mean, I obviously unmuted my system. My computer's playing music. Oh, it's the Game of Thrones has always been epic. Enix. <laughs> Square Enix. Split the difference. Yeah. Square Enix. Okay. Eventually, they do get to the tomb of... God damn it, what's Himiko. her name? The tomb of Yamiko. Him- Himiko or... Himiko. Himiko, Himiko. yeah. I've- the tomb of Himiko. I, I agree. It's not going to change your life. It's not going to change. <laughs> not going to change your life. Um, I, I need it. You have got something you need to tell me before you no, take off those headphones. But you know there is that life clinic that I drive past every time that I come here. What what's going on in Central Illinois that we need an entire building to handle life? <laughs> and do we need a movie to change your life? We might. That's frightening. 